Welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Martin. This week, we are talking about the Criterium du Dauphiné, which just wrapped up last weekend, and the Tour du Suisse, which is going on right now. Uh, Richie Port won the overall at the Dauphiné. Uh, used to be called the Dauphiné Libre. I can't stop calling it that either. His teammate, Garrett Thomas, got third. Alexi Lucinko got a surprise second place. Uh, it was kind of a boring race, but there, there's some interesting nuggets of info in there, especially as it pertains to the Tour de France, so we're going to go into that. And the Tour de Suisse, oh my, it is a super exciting race. It's it's like uh, watching TV in color after like watching black and white for years and years. It is so exciting, especially relative to the Dauphiné. So yeah, I'm going to dive into a couple things there. But first, if you want to support the podcast, you can sign up for the newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. There's a free weekly edition. If you like this podcast, that is a no-brainer. Sign up for that right now. There's also a paid edition for premium subscribers. Uh, it comes out every day during Grand Tours and twice weekly during non-Grand Tour weeks. There's deals and discounts to brands like Cure of Switzerland and Stages Cycling. And if you are signed up for the free edition and want to upgrade, you can just go to the, hit the subscribe button on the website and you can upgrade your membership that way. All right, well, back to the racing, the Dauphiné. Um, just just quick notes up top. Ineos wins the race. Overall, Richie Port gets uh, probably one of the biggest victories of his career. He's won Paris-Nice before. I would probably argue Paris-Nice is a bigger race. Um, we're kind of splitting hairs here, though. Um, I do think his biggest result is still his third place at the 2020 Tour de France last year. Marc Padin from Victoria, Bahrain Victorious wins the two hardest mountain stages on Saturday and Sunday. Um, I would argue kind of steals the show from Ineos and Port, but uh, that is just my opinion. It is, I will say, it is unusual at the, at the Dauphiné for the overall winner and the stage winner not to be winning the final two mountain stages, at least one of them. Uh, so that was that was really really odd that they would be one out of a out of the breakaway or b by a rider who as who was like thirty minutes down. I don't even I have no idea how he got thirty minutes down in just like four stages. Um, that kind of boggles my mind. I'm not sure if that was some like tactic on his part or the team's part to lose time so he'd be let go. But the the weird thing is he wasn't let go. He just ripped off the front of the peloton on Saturday. I've actually never you rarely see something like that where. Um, he was 31 minutes down in the overall, and he just roasted everyone on the final climb, the summit finish on Saturday. Um, so, yeah, it seems like he could have won the overall. Uh, I, I don't I have no idea what happened in the early stages, if he was just like a mental thing, just with positioning, was caught out, and then got dropped. But he was clearly the strongest rider in the race. Um, pedal, pedal stroke for pedal stroke, the strongest rider hands down in that race. So, really strange to me how he lost that much time. I, I have no idea how that happened. Um, the other big note is, I mean, let's just say Richie Portlidge, great. Seems like a nice guy. He has struggled throughout his career to win races. Cer certainly wouldn't call him a race winner. He finds um, really impressive and inventive ways to lose races on a shockingly consistent basis. Um, so this is big, big for him. Um, he, he like famously struggles with pressure. Anytime he's in a leadership position, he, he tends to crash out or um, have a flat at a bad time. It's actually to the point, I mean, he's 36 years old, so we have like a huge sample size here. Uh, I'm convinced it's somewhat of a mental thing where even flats, people just think they're bad luck, but a lot of times it has to do with where you're riding in the road, where you've put yourself in the pack. So, I mean, think about Lance Armstrong, uh, never really had any serious flat tires in his seven-year Tour de France run. Um, that That's not just luck. That's because Lance knew where to ride and how to ride and how to avoid flat tires and the part you know, part of the road where you're more likely to get flat. So 
there's a skill component there and experience component. But outside of Port's uh, fairly dominant GC performance, I thought Ineos looked looked really all over the place. Uh, they in the past they've come come into races with like a, a really clear hierarchy and a really clear strategy about what they're going to do. Um, at this Dauphiné, they I guess they technically had three leaders: Garrett Thomas, Theo Gegenhardt, and Richie Port. Um, Theo Gegenhardt had a very, very bad time trial. He lost over a minute. So he was kind of eliminated from overall contention right there. Uh, Richie Port actually had the best time trial of the three. But Garrett Thomas uh, did a late race breakaway on stage on stage five and stole some time back. Uh, stole a 10-second time bonus. He actually jumped over Port by a few seconds. Kind of a weird decision. Uh, you don't normally see someone doing that, especially with the big mountain stages come up. Coming up, it kind of looked to me like he wanted to be in front of Port, but uh, we'll just set that aside for now. That they get into the big, a big summit finish on stage seven, and uh, Richie Port attacks really early, like eight k from the from the finish line. That, that's not highly unusual if you're not leading a race. Alexi Lusinko is in the race lead at this time. Uh, that's not that's not a crazy thing to do because you you know you have to get time somehow if you just ride defensively. You're just going to let Alexis Inko win the race. But Richie Port attacks. He gets followed by Mark Padun, Sepkus, and uh, Enric Mass. And, but this is kind of where it all starts to go sideways. Like within half a kilometer, Port and Moss are dropped. It kind of looked like they were having an argument. But in retrospect, I think Port just realized like, oh my God, this guy's going so fast. Um, it's, not, it's not a sustainable pace for me. I have to pull off. Sepkus stays with him. The, but right here, it's tricky because Sepkus is only, I think he was like a, a minute down on the GC. So if Sepkus, he pulls out around 30 seconds on the, on the Thomas group, the Lucinko group in like a couple kilometers. So he, half of his deficit is gone right there. Um, this is tricky for Ineos because now Port is isolated. Port is stuck in between these two groups. Thomas is, is in the peloton with Theo Gegenhardt. So in theory, not a horrible situation, but Neither of them can work because Port's up the road. So in theory, they're just letting Sepkus, they're potentially letting Sepkus ride into the race lead. Uh, this is like a very bad situation for them. And they just have to hope that Richie Port can stay close enough to him to take the race lead if you know both of them finish uh, far enough in front of Lucinko to, to, to jump over him in the GC. It's a very bad situation because even if Thomas and Gegenhart are strong enough, they can't pull Richie Port back to try to keep Sepkus from getting the race lead. Uh, they kind of get bailed out here because Sepkus is just not as strong as he was last year. Um, he was so, so strong last year. He was so impressive, especially at the Dauphiné. Um, he just hasn't been able to find that form. I'm not sure what happened. He signed a contract in the offseason. So um, it's not unusual for a rider to have a dip, um, whether that's motivation or there, there can be a dip in performance after a rider signs a contract. If you're a doping conspiracy theorist, you'd say because they don't feel the need to take the risk in a, in a non-contract year. Uh, it sounds cynical to say, but it is quite common that you'll see uh, more suspicious performances in a contract year. Uh, so, so Kuz kind of bails him out. He gets dropped. Port does a really good job of managing, managing his effort. He just kind of stays with Moss. Kind of a problem that happens here is Mijarango Lopez, who isn't that far down, I think he was around 30 or 40 seconds down in the GC at the time, jumps out of the Thomas group, bridges up to port. And Thomas, in theory, Thomas should go with him there. If Thomas can, he should have gone. Um, the fact that he didn't tells me he couldn't, because that's pretty bad. That, that also puts port in a bad position, because now he has 
multiple GC contenders coming up to him while he's exposed and they can attack him. And he's been sitting out there for a couple kilometers just really by himself. Um, what if they bridge up to him and drop him? Now, Enios is in a really bad position because at this point, Teo Gegenhardt's been dropped because he's been working a little bit for Thomas. Uh, now they have three quote unquote leaders riding separately, all separately on the climb. Um, they can't consolidate their strength. They can't help each other. They can't even really communicate to each other. It's a potentially a huge disaster. What happens here is Port bails him out by just being so strong. He just counterattacks Lopez. Uh, they blow past Sepkus. Port gets second on the stage, I believe, but by quite a bit behind Mark Badoon, who just really put in an impressive climbing performance. So Port saves their butt here. He rides into the race lead, only 17 seconds in front of Alexi Lusinko, who finishes with uh, Garrett Thomas. Uh, Thomas has an okay performance, I guess. Uh, he really needed to go with that Lopez, you know, surging group, the the raiding party that that left the peloton to go up to port. That kind of needed to happen because let's just do the alternative reality of this stage is they have an internal discussion inside the team. They decide that Richie Port is the strongest rider, is the leader. Um, I think the, the time trial should have told them that. Richie Port's not traditionally as good of a time trialist as Garrett Thomas. So the fact that he's out time trialing him should tell us like, well, he's going to be even that much better in the mountains because he shouldn't be beating Garrett in the time trial in the first place. So what they should have done, you know, in my opinion, the alternative solution to this just would have been well, once Movistar runs out of guys with AK to go, instead of board attacking, just put Thomas and Gegenhardt on the front, ramp the pace up high enough that no one can attack off it. Kus and Pudon and Enric Mass never feel confident enough to attack. You kind of slowly wear out Lucinko. Lucinko's hanging on for dear life, and then maybe Port attacks three or four kilometers from the finish. Um, and what this would accomplish is it, he's not isolated six or seven K from the line, which is a total disaster, potential disaster. He's just exploding off a fast pace. You know, maybe Mark Padone can go with him because Mark Padone's so strong. So it's just him and Padone off the front. Lopez is cooked by this point. You've cooked, hopefully, Lucinko. Um, and you could probably have created much bigger gaps that way because, you know, maybe Lucinko gets distanced six or seven K from the line. If you're if they're doing the regular regular Ineos hard pace, you know that's just that's what's been successful for them throughout the years. It's it's proven to work because if anyone's just a little bit off, you know, or not as strong as you, you're just going to blow them out of the water. And I think that's what they should have done with Lucinko and Lopez. I don't even think those guys would have been in the conversation on Sunday if they would have executed just their normal plan. But I that the reason that plan wasn't executed is because they're not quite sure who their leader is. You know, they're like trying to walk three different lines here, and it's going to be only worse the tour because they're going to the tour with four leaders potentially out of eight total riders. So a uh, total disaster. And another another um, place where this kind of showed its potential uh, pitfalls is on stage eight. Richie Port's in the race lead. They do the Côte de la Plan, which is a really really hard climb, like 11k at nine percent descended into Morzine, and then it was like an easier 3K climb to the finish line. So if anyone wanted to dislodge Port, everyone knows Richie Port's a terrible descender. It was that descent off the Jou plan. You know, everyone's briefed on this. The, the other GC riders know it. Uh, any host should definitely know it. They should have talked about this before the stage. No one tries anything on the climb because Teo Gegenhardt is setting a really hard pace. Uh, I guess I shouldn't say no one tried anything. Miguel Angel Lopez tried to attack. It was not even close to successful because this is the beauty of Ineos. They have so much stinking money. When Miguel Angel Lopez attacks, Teo Gegenhardt's 
working. He's the third in line at Ineos. He's pulling back a team leader. The guy is, has a Giro d'Italia win on his Palmares. He's a better rider than Lopez. You know, in his Palmares would reflect that Lopez has never even really gotten close to winning Grand Tour before. He'll, he'll never win a Grand Tour. I'm pretty confident of that. He just lacks the, the all-round strength to do that. So they have a Grand Tour winner setting pace. They can just burn this guy, pulling back attacks. So it's a very, very strong position they're in. But Jack Haig attacks over the top, gets a little bit of a gap. It's a really smart move. I, uh, what's his name? Brian Smith. Uh, very smart, very smart cycling mind. But uh, he was on the Eurosport commentary saying, well, Haig should have done this earlier. You know, I don't know if I totally agree with that because Haig probably knows, well, I'm just going to get pegged back anyway. But if I go towards the top, maybe I can get over the top with a slight gap, which he did. And maybe I can just drill it on the descent. Maybe a few other guys come up to me. And we distance Rich Report, which is exactly what happened. That he even got Lucinko up there with him, who's really motivated, motivated because all he needs is, you know, 20, 30 seconds on this descent on port, and he could potentially win the overall. Um, he needs even less if they catch the breakaway, the remainder of the breakaway. But what a weird thing happens here is Garrett Thomas goes with that front group and leaves Richie Port behind. This is a huge no no because it A leaves Port exposed. If Port gets dropped, um, he could easily lose 20 or 30 seconds. And then what does Thomas do? Thomas is up in that front group. He can't pull because his teammate is leading the race and he would be helping Alexi Lusenko win. Uh, I guess he could drop back, but then he just should have been with Port. But what the, the, big, the big worry here is Port has a problem and then he's by himself. There's no one there to help him. Um, another also potential issue is Thomas is dropped or crash crashes, and that's exactly what happened. He's going way too fast on the descent. He's also not that strong of a descender. This is Ineos is like big, a uh, big problem with their their Anglo riders. A lot of them aren't great descenders, and people know it, and they try to exploit it. Thomas crashes, uh, overextending himself on the descent, and Port's coming up behind and almost runs into him, and that would have been a complete disaster where you have both your leaders crash out on the final descent of the final stage. And it was close to happening. Port did a good job to, to avoid him. But they really lucked out because there was uh, multiple riders, I think Ben O'Connor specifically in the Port group, that were working really hard on that descent to, to peg back that escapee group. Because if they get down to Morzine and there's a 20-second gap, that would have been a complete disaster for Ineos. Uh, because Thomas is in that front group, but what, what can he do? He can, he can sit there and hope that Port pulls back Lucinko enough to preserve his race lead. Um, in theory, he could attack, but that, that has its own problems because if he attacks and Lucinko goes with him, he's increasing the pace and actually pulling the gap out between Lucinko and Port. Uh, so that that's, could be highly problematic. Um, he could sit up and wait, but then, well, what was the point of the descent? What, why take the risk on the descent if you're just going to wait for Port in the first place? And that's kind of my point. He knew Port is a poor descender. He should have been thinking of that on the descent. Um, the I'm not suggesting that he was trying to like win the race by slipping away on the descent and dropping his own teammate because that has a lot of problems in and, in and of itself because, well, how's he going to get rid of Lucinko? That's just helping Lucinko win the race. Um, and this is the second time this has happened in a month on this team where Johnny Moscon did the same thing at the Giro. He tried to follow Vincenzo Dibali when he should have stayed back with the team and he crashed because he's going too fast. Uh, to me, this like speaks to an issue in the team car where they just don't have like they really miss Nico Portal. He was their, uh, their main director sportif, kind of their, their in-race manager for years and years and years. He was very good at his job, very good at man management. Um, he actually died tragically of a heart issue. Uh, it was like a year and a half ago at this point. 
And I think they, they haven't recovered that. They don't have that voice of authority. And I think that's exactly what happened here. And this will be, this will be an issue. I mean, this couldn't be exploited that successfully because one of the reasons is uh, Thomas is off the back after he crashes. They get to the final climb and no one really does anything. They kind of attacked Port. They had him under pressure. Um, he was isolated. There was you know, ping pong attacks flying off the front and they just kind of stopped. They just stopped and waited for Thomas to catch back on. And once Thomas was on, he was on such a good day. No one could do anything. Ben O'Connor attacks. It's a little bit of a gap, but Thomas was just pegging it uh, pretty comfortably. He, he was never really going to get any serious time. So the fact that uh, this was a weak field, this was one of the weakest GC fields I think I've ever seen at the, at the Dauphiné. And part of that is because the Tour of Switzerland has such a, a, a very exciting, very, very good field, very strong field. Um, and then also the other part is the two best GC riders in the world, Tadej Pogacar and Primoz Roglic, are doing their own thing. Uh, Pogacar is doing the tour of Slovenia, and Roglic is just doing his own personal training camp, possibly because he crashed the Dauphiné, much like Garen Thomas did this year. And that's part of the reason what he thinks he lost the Tour de France, because he was kind of putting it just kind of puts you in a hole. Even if there's not huge injuries on the day of the crash, it can cause problems later. It's also something to keep an eye on with Garen Thomas. But the, the fact that they almost got duped by this weak GC field with their inability to kind of consolidate behind a single leader should tell us that there could be problems at the tour. But the main thing to me, the main thing that stuck out here is Mark Padone's a problem. Mark Padone signals a big problem for this team, not Padone specifically, because if you go back through riders who have impressed, who have kind of come out of the woodwork and impressed us at the Dauphiné, let's say in the past 10 years, they've all kind of really struggled at the tour. So. I don't think this guy is just going to be lighting up at the tour um, and, win, and win the race. I think that's unlikely. But what he represents is there's a speed out there that's not being, that was not being achieved by this GC field. When he attacked on stage seven, he's just straight up faster than everybody. And he, but he's not the fastest climber in professional cycling. Those guys are going to be at the tour. That's going to be a huge issue. Ineos looked impressive. They had the train going. But the problem is they're going way too slow, like way too slow. If, they go, if they're going that speed at the tour, they're going to be minutes behind Tade Pogacar um, and Primoz Roglic. So uh, problem number one right there, where I just think that at the end of the day, Port, I mean, this happened to Port. He rode to an impressive third place at the tour last year, but he was just never fast enough on the climbs. Um, and I think he's one of their best riders. So that's a huge problem. Um, the fact that they just got roasted by Padone, and Padone was in the early break on Sunday. But guy, so the guy won the day before. He's in the early break, and they didn't really take any time on him on the Jou plan or that final climb. That's bad. They should be going a lot faster than him. So that was kind of my takeaway. It's like, well, Padone is this this pace rabbit, and he should represent the speed that the best best guys are going to be going at the tour. And Ineos is getting smoked. Uh, specifically, stage seven. That was that was really like a a shellacking. Um, and I think it, I think it should worry them. Other last notes from, from the race. So Richie Port wins a uh, big win for him. Uh, but what is this? You know, let's just like, let's just meditate on that for one second. Richie Port wins. Whew, that's big. Especially after he lost this on the final stage in 2017, specifically because of Ineos speeding up on him. So must've felt nice to be on the winning side and have a strong team to support him. So chapeau, Richie, we're proud of you. Okay, now let's talk about what does this mean going forward? Like, does he realistically have a shot of winning the Tour de France? Five of the last 10 Dauphiné winners have gone on to win the Tour. Um, and, and that kind of sums up, it is really a coin flip. Um, 
some of these winners like Jakob Fulsang, Danny Martinez, I mean, they're, they were really not, they didn't really have serious chances of winning the tour. Some of them, like Bradley Wiggins and Chris Room, went on to dominate the tour. So we really don't know. He certainly looks good. He looks strong. Um, I don't think Richie's physical gifts have ever really been in question, though. Um, it's more of a mental thing for him. If you remember, he won the Tour of Switzerland in 2018. Uh, it's a very similar race, very similar time of year. He kind of looked to be a favorite for the Tour, goes in there, crashes out on stage nine. Um, that's always the risk with Richie. Um, it's these crashes, these he kind of will lose the race when, what was that, 2017, I believe, when he was in great form. He gets a flat on like stage three, loses a minute, and then he was just always in a hole because of that. It's stuff like that with Richie that gets him. Um, I think he's very good, very strong. He is old. He's 36. He'd be the oldest winner in over 100 years. So not good there. But I think the biggest hurdle for him is just going to be getting any type of leadership position on that Ineos team. Um, he just said in an interview with Cycling Tips right after the race that Garrett Thomas is their like, number one leader for the tour. So, so they've come out and said their leaders are going to be Garrett Thomas, Teo Gegenhardt, and Richard Carapaz. And Richie Port's there just to help other people. Um, clearly, Teo's not as strong as Richie. So that's a mistake right there. I don't even know why they came out and said that. It seems like an unforced error. Um, I think, you know, they're going to say what they're going to say, but we have a time trial on stage five, I believe, of the tour, where you can't hide there. If Teo's not strong enough, he's going to lose a bunch of time to his own teammates like Richie and Geraint. Um, we have New de Bretagne on stage two. That is a, a steep, steep finish. Um, you're going to see some, some fairly significant time gaps there, 10, 15, 20 seconds. I mean, you could see someone, you could see a B-grade contender lose like a minute. Um, it's a it's a really really steep. It's kind of the that's I mean a wall of wall of Brittany would be the translation. It really just kind of rises out of the flat terrain of of Brittany and can punch you in the face. So you could see after stage five some significant gaps. I think you know my my intuition is that Ineos is going to realize after those three stages they have three riders in a decent position. It is going to be Richie Port, Richard Carapaz, uh, Garrett Thomas. Um, we'll talk about. Uh, Carapaz in one second. Port, I, Port is in the odd position of just having won the major uh, Tour de France preparation rate, race and is probably fourth on his team as a leader. That's <laughs> very weird, very unprecedented, I'd say. I've never seen anything quite like that, but I think this is good for him. I put this in the newsletter where you know, he, always, he never rides well as a leader. Like last year, he had no expectations, was really riding under the radar and just rode a great Tour de France. So I think the same, he could have that same phenomenon here, especially if there's issues, if his teammates have issues, which I think they will, that Garrett Thomas will struggle, struggle Teo Gigginhart will struggle, and Richard Carapaz will just lose too much time in the time trials. So yeah, I think he could go into the third week and be probably the leader on that team. But We'll see. It's, it's an interesting thing to think about. But that, you know, Ineos is in the unenviable position of having four leaders and none of them likely strong enough to win the race. So that's kind of a problem. But that kind of segues into our next topic, Tour du Suisse, where I think Richard Carapaz is going to win this race. A commenter pointed out after the Monday newsletter that he thinks Richard Carapaz is um, Ineos's best shot at this Tour de France. I've pushed back on this a lot over the many the the many months since the last tour because I just think with 58 kilometers of time trialing, his time trial is not good enough uh, to, to be in contention. But this commenter pointed out his time trial is getting better. Um, he had a decent, I'd say, a fairly decent time trial at the 
2020 Vuelta España that kept him in contention. But the thing is, I noticed, so stage one of the Tour of Switzerland was a 11K long time trial. He finishes, Richard Carapaz finishes 15th, 31 seconds behind stage winner Stefan Kuhn. That's pretty good. Um, other, there's not many GC contenders. Let's, let's call Julian Alaphilippe. I think he will contend for GC at this Tour de Switzerland. He was 19 seconds back. Max Schachman, who I think is a very, very strong contender at this race, is 12, 29 seconds back. So that's, he beats Tom Dumoulin by a second, who's a very good time trialist. He beats Bob Youngles, who's a very good time trialist. Um, that's a serious ride from him. That's kind of a shot. It shows his intention right there. Shot across the bow, so to speak. So yeah, I, I, my interest has peaked on that. I, I was pretty down on Carapaz. I didn't think that maybe they, they shouldn't end up even taking him. But yeah, if he, this commenter pointed something out that that time trial is coming along for him, and he is he is just a good racer, and he's a good climber. He's probably not as good as the best guys, but he's probably the best rider. I think he's he's probably the best GC rider and climber on Ineos behind Bernal. So he's not a ter- it's not a terrible wild card to bring, especially if he can pull out some decent time trials. The case against this would be he lost 49 seconds to Primoz Roglic and 33 kilometers of time trialing at the 2020 Volta. And a lot of that time trial was uphill, which suits him. So if you spread that out to 58 kilometers and it's an even better time trialist than Tadej Pogacar, that could be a problem. Um, he'd have to be really creative to make up that time. But it's an interesting option. It's a really interesting option, actually. I think his biggest, you know, probably his biggest obstacle to getting any type of leadership is that team. Um, it, it's it's a British team. They they really promote the British riders. I think Teo and Garrett are going to be leaders until proven otherwise. Yeah. So best of luck to Carapaz, but that could be tough for him. But to talk a little bit more about the Tour of Switzerland. Wow, what a great race. I mean, so stage one, the time trials. Yeah, whatever. But some interesting results there. Stage two, uh, it's Switzerland, so of course it's raining. <laughs> they were going in and out of like the hardest. From the hardest rain I've ever seen to like almost a sunny day, it was it was really surreal. But you're getting this incredible race, and where you have just world class one day racers and stage hunters like Mark Hershey, Matthew Vanderpoel, and Julian Alaphilippe just launching like knockout haymaker attacks at each other, like 20k from the line, and it's having big GC implications. It's it's blowing the race up, and these are the easiest stages of the Tour of Switzerland, uh, stages two and three, and they were crazy. So. On stage two, it was terrible weather for for some of it. Some of it was sunny. Um, huge GC gaps, bigger GC gaps than we saw in the high mountains at the Dauphiné, or b- bigger GC gaps than we saw in any of the mountain stages at the Giro. Uh, Matthew Vanderpool wins, uh, which is, you just look at the results, you're like, well, that kind of makes sense. But it was an incredible win. He attacked solo with 3K to go. It was just a really like really impressive move. He probably could have waited and sprinted, but he just ripped up this front. It was a small front group he was in. Max Shackman goes with him, gets second, still loses a second. That's how powerful Vanderpool was finishing this race. Wout Poles gets third after a terrible time trial. Um, and then it's just this, it's this beautiful smorgasbord of, of riders. It almost looks like you put their names in a hat and just shook it up. And this is what you came out with, where you have like Mark Hershey in fifth, Richard Carapaz in sixth, and he um, he's up there kind of by himself. Uh, you know, the Ineos was so strong at the Dauphiné, at the Tour de Suisse, Carapaz is kind of on his own, um, which, you know, conspiracy theory where you're like, is he kind of being hung out to dry by Ineos management here where they send this really strong team to support 
Garrett Thomas at the Dauphiné, he gets a win. It solidifies his status as the tour leader. They send this uh, to be, let's just be polite, dog shit team to the Tour of Switzerland to support Richard Carapaz. Oh, he loses. Sorry, Rich- Sorry Richard. Garrett's the leader. That's kind of what it feels like here. Um, I'm sure it's more complex than that, but that's what it seems like. Uh, Mike Woods makes it. Julian of Alfleet makes it. Jakob Fulsang makes it. And then anyone that's not them loses serious time. Uh, Rigoberto Iran loses 11 seconds. And the next group's 22 seconds back. I mean, so GC contenders lost the race on stage two, on, on a pseudo sprint stage. And stage three was uh, today or yesterday, depending, I guess you'll be listening when you're listening to this uh, yesterday. Vanderpool wins again in a, a kind of an uphill sprint, but it's a small group at the end. It's a 45 person group in a sprint finish. That's not huge. Um, and Vanderpool gets enough time bonus as he takes the GC lead from Stefan Kung. Julian Alaphilippe, who's Dakota Quickstep team, raced kind of all day to get him in the leader's jersey, loses out by a second because he is overtaken by Christophe Laporte, gets third in the stage. Um, so just really exciting racing. The whole thing, it's this perfect, uh, it's like the collision of GC and stage, uh, GC and like stage winning opportunist, where if you notice at the Giro and the, the, at the Dauphiné somewhat, they, the stage, the battle for the stage win and the battle for the GC were like running on two, they were like trains running on two separate tracks, um, which is a kind of the worst, the worst version of stage racing. You can really see the delineation between the two types of racing. But the platonic ideal, like the beautiful way stage racing can be done, is this Tour de Suisse where it's like all colliding together and the battle for the stage win is affecting the battle for the GC and the battle for the GC is affecting the battle for the stage win where Dakota Quickstep worked really hard today to pull back even Cartina, even Yvonne Cortina Garcia um, to get the leader's jersey and Matthew Vanderpool gets the stage win because of it. And then they end up losing the leader's jersey because they helped Matthew Vanderpool get the stage win. So. Just really exciting racing, really interesting subplots going on, like subplots to subplot to subplots. And I just can't say enough nice things about it. And we're, we're in the boring part of the race. Um, the, the rest of the race is we go medium mountain stage tomorrow or today. So medium mountain stage today, mountain stage on, on Thursday, mountain stage on Friday, time trial on Saturday, mountain stage on Sunday. So this is a brutal race. Um, it's kind of a funny race. If you look back through the, the winners, it's hard to pull anything useful out of the Tour of Switzerland. I mean, you had three years where Rui Costa won it three years in a row, 2012 to 2015. And then the, you had the Simon Spilak era. And then Richie Port wins it in 2018. He looked good enough to win the Tour. In, in my opinion, I thought he might win the Tour that year. Silly me, he crashes out. 2019, though, Egan Bernal wins. And if you remember, he won the Tour de France that year. So it can produce completely random. I mean, obviously, Spilak and Rui Costa are very strong riders. Um, they're not Grand Tour contenders by any stretch of the imagination. Egan Bernal is certainly a Grand Tour contender. So uh, it's hard to read. To, it's hard to like dis- discern what exactly the Tour of Switzerland means at any point in time. But I think it, it is going to be a battle between, in my opinion, a battle between Shackman and Carapaz. I think Carapaz is going to win. And I think that bodes well for, especially since it's a, if it's a double, a double time trial stage race, if Carapaz can win that, that's a big statement going into a time trial heavy Tour de France. It's a big statement to us, but it's also it's a bigger statement to his team, you know, and himself. Um, it would be a huge win. I also think Max Shackman has looked so strong. I'd kind of forgotten Shackman. If you remember, he had a great, um, a pretty good 2019, and then. 
He had a great start to 2020 after the COVID restart, and then he got hit by a car at, in a race at the Giro de Lombardia, broke his collarbone. I think he raced the tour with a broken collarbone. So I think a lot of people, it skewed a lot of people's uh, view of him. Or like, hey, this guy's always getting dropped. What's his problem? It's like, well, he's got a broken collarbone, so cut him a break. But he is talented. He's good. He's a good racer. He can race one-day races at a very high level. But he's a, I think he's, and he's an emerging and ascendant stage racer. So if you were looking at like outside bets for tour podium, Shackman might be on it. Um, it's, it's, I think it's pretty wide open behind Roglic and Pogachar. And Shackman could, could be in that group that could challenge for that third place. You know, as, I, as in I've just said, I think if Carapaz wins this, that, that makes the tours a little bit more interesting. Other notes, it's hard to imagine Matthew Vanderpool not winning like the first few stages of the Tour de France after watching this. He looks incredible, imperious. If, if, you, want to say, if you want to say he looks incredible, but I also went to a good school, just say he looks imperious right now. He took a break. If you remember the classics, he kind of, I felt like he sputtered out of the classics. Um, he just started the year too early with the cross. You know, he's flying from cross world championships all the way to the Tour of Flanders. Um, and then he went and raced. I think he probably rested for a little bit. And then he did some mountain bike racing and it has served him well. I mean, he looks so sharp. He looks sharper actually now than I, maybe at those early semi-classics when he was off the front for like 70K, just, just messing around, trying to get in shape. He looks pretty sharp then, but you know these are you could argue these are harder races in those semi classics. I mean, people are are gearing up for the Tour de France. And guys like Julian Alaphilippe are not messing around, and he roasted Alaphilippe in the sprint today. Um, wasn't even close. So it is. If we if we looked at and if we look at the Tour route, the beginning few stages. Yeah, we have a hilly. We start in Brittany. Um, I think he could win. You know, you could see him winning first stage, stage three, stage four, stage six. <laughs> he could he could really do some damage here. Um, I would say he's a contender for the green jersey, but I think there's zero percent chance if the Olympics happen that he stays in in this race for the whole time or stays in the tour for the whole time. I think he'll have to pull out early to get to to Japan and prepare for the Olympic mountain bike race. But yeah, it is it is good to see him back and, and racing so well. It, it makes me very excited for the tour. I mean, this tour of Switzerland, I cannot recommend watching this enough. <laughs> like Hershey looks great, Al Philippe looks great. Vanderpool looks great, and they are just blowing up these stages. These are the early transition kind of boring sprint stages, and they are just launching bombs and just blowing the race up. So, uh, yeah, can't can't emphasize much how how exciting and how welcome this is after uh, after kind of uh, after I would say slightly disappointing Giro and a heavily disappointing Dauphiné. Um, there were stages of Dauphiné that were it's like, oh man, should I just get into like F one? What am I doing? These guys are like very happy with the fifth place and they are not going to attack to move up from this fifth place. And that's when cycling is the hardest to watch, when you care more about the riders advancing their position than they do. Um, it kind of makes you reevaluate your life. And maybe instead of going on, you know, most people would say, maybe I'll get into like finance. I'll just, I'll just I'll be a finance guy or I'll like get into the languages. Like, no, I'm like, oh, maybe I'll get into another sport like F1. That'd be cool. That's all I have this week, and I'm gonna check in after this tour of Switzerland wraps up. I think we'll have a lot of inch, a lot of interesting stuff to talk about after this this race is over. So excited to see how that plays out, and I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye.